Let's go to the Lord in prayer. But first, let's read. We're going to read uh, just the first handful of verses. It says in uh, John chapter 15, verse 1, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now you're already clean, kasaros, we'll talk about that, because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now abide in me, and I in you, and the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him bears much fruit. Without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch, and is withered. And they gather him, them, and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love have no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all the things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, then pointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you for the privilege of this time and all that you wish to speak to us in it. I pray, God, that our hearts and our minds and our ears will be open. God, that you would plant richly your word and that you would develop this in a way we understand, in a way that we get. Lord, I pray that you would come upon me, immerse me in your spirit, that you would be seen, not me. Come upon me, that you would do through me what only you can do. And have your way now, God, I pray. Develop this text profoundly, Lord, in a way that we get in. Lord, I pray you would speak fluent us. I pray you would redeem every second. And let this be a time, Lord, where we just say, wow, how good you are. So we commit this to you. And I just pray, Lord, that we'd have so much fun in your scriptures. So much fun. And that we would be captivated and learn as you desire for us to equip us, train us, challenge us, correct us, rebuke us as necessary, that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, now have your work, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please never just believe me. Never just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. No matter what you hear and from whom you hear it. Let it be that your Bible be the thing for which you test everything you hear to be true or false. Now we're at that last moment in Jesus' ministry, well, in regards to before being arrested. Jesus has, in chapter 14, spoken at the Passover. Unique, by the way, chapters 14 through 17, entirely unique to the Gospel of John. You won't read them in any of the other Gospels. And, and in that, Jesus has spoken because he's dropping a bomb on these guys who have left three, three and a half years ago to follow Jesus. They've given up everything. Very different from us. It isn't like we can say, well, Lord, I've surrendered everything, and you can have everything. Well, they left their houses, they left their jobs, they left their families, they left everything to follow Jesus, dropped their nets and their boats and dads and everything. And, and so when Jesus says, I'm leaving, they, they really have put all of their eggs in that basket. They've really now in a place where 
they're completely in shock. And you would be too. And I, I have to be honest, even before I even develop a text like this, that's the first place I normally go, was, Jesus, if you took a break, if you left for a day, would I panic? Would it bother me like it bothered them? If you were to say, you know what, okay, you can go to heaven still, but we're not going to hang out anymore until then, would it freak me out? Would there be a part of me that thinks every area of my life is completely wrong now? Because I'll be honest, there's so much that we develop in our lives that, that just seems like if God showed up or He didn't show up, it would still kind of function basically the way it did before. And to me, that just seems like a complete travesty. It just doesn't work. So in chapter 14, understand when Jesus is saying this, every fuse in your brain pops because you're like, I don't, I don't get it. You said you would be with us forever and how in the world is this going to happen then? With that in mind, Jesus now starts to walk. You remember, at the end of chapter 14, he's like, no, all right, let us go from here. They are leaving that area we know of that would be the upper room, the place where they were having that last supper, well, temporary, the last supper. And, and in that then, Jesus starts to walk. Now, understand, if he's in Jerusalem proper, he has to walk somehow in this, and he has to leave Jerusalem to go and enter into the Mount of Olives. Now, if Jesus is in the southern end, where we're looking at here, the own area, well, then Jesus has to walk through vineyards, and he has to cross this valley that we know of as the Kidron Valley. The Kidron means dark in Hebrew, because it was the sewage system for Jerusalem. Now, the idea would be, in a, in a time like this, it wasn't like you were just trying to avoid things that had been flushed. This was a time when over 100,000, according to Josephus, over 100,000 lambs were being slaughtered. So that was flowing with blood. And it was flowing with the blood that was to testify of the Lamb of God that was setting people free from their bondage. That was kind of how this thing played out. And imagine the Lamb of God proper, Jesus, walking through this river of blood that is flowing because people are using the emblems to testify but ignoring Him in the process. We can do the same thing. Get caught up in all of the sort of church stuff and miss the person that, for whom all of this belongs. And as Jesus is doing that, he's pulling from the environment around him. And it seems almost cruel and strange for Jesus to say, in chapter 14, I'm leaving, but in chapter 15, you need to stay with me. Except for the fact that he promised he would leave an Aaron Perakleton, another helper. And you realize there's an interesting term here that you could miss because Jesus will tell us he's been in love, continues to be in love, and will forever then be in love, and then challenges us to be in love. Now, up to this point, perhaps we've looked at the thought of loving, and we see it, of course, as a verb, and we see it as something that's a complete and absolute surrender and sacrifice for another person's benefit. As a matter of fact, that's what it'll teach us here. We give life to give life. And yet, in these particular handful of verses, it's interesting, because we've really only read, if you kind of look at it, till verse 17, and yet in these verses, the term abide will be mentioned well, 11 times in seven of those verses collectively. Fruit will be mentioned eight times, which will make sense for where we're walking. And the word love will be mentioned nine times in six verses. In other words, in the total of these 17 verses, 28 times one of these three words is mentioned. Well, that tells me there's something very, very sort of pointed in this. So imagine Jesus is walking through a vineyard, and we're agrarian culture here. In other words, we're farmers. We know how this works. And either we raise animals that eat this stuff, or we raise this stuff for, for a living. And, and the two primary sort of crops that we're looking at in this area of Jerusalem, of course, are going to be grapes and are going to be olives. 
Olives, of course, fundamental because they need to be close because that's what anoints the priest. That's, of course, what anoints the king and the, and the prophets. And it's what keeps the menorah, the lampstand, burning. You want that kind of close. Now, with that, Jesus looks and he says, I'm the true vine in verse 15. And here we are, imagine, walking through vineyards. And as we're walking through vineyards, Jesus says, I'm the true vine. Now, don't miss this. He doesn't just say, I'm the vine. Now that tells me something right from the get-go, and that is somewhere in all of this is he starts to lay out this kind of metaphor for us to grab a hold of, that there are false vines for us to grab a hold of as well. Now we'll say in the simplest sense, in verse 1, notice, I'm the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Two of the three parts of the Trinity involved in this great cosmic gardening, if you will. For which, by the way, dare I say the Holy Spirit might play the role of sap, the thing that kind of gives us life and produces the fruit. We'll see that in a bit. And he looks at this and he goes, now look at there are a lot of things you can tap into. And you can tap into for life. You can tap into, in essence, to try to get that vibrance and that refreshment. And you're going to bear fruit from what you tap into. But you need to know there's only one true vine and I'm him. Now think of it this way. And I'm going to just put it as plainly as I can. Every human being, myself included, we suck. We suck because we come thirsty. So imagine, if you will, you come with your straw to try to find out how to find those things that are so important in life. And now don't miss this, because this is our problem, is we need people, and if we were going to be completely honest, it's like, hi, I suck. What do you offer me? What do you have to give me? What is it that could make me? And what happens is, let's be honest, it's like wanting things and you don't even know what it is. It's like having a taste for something you've never eaten. You're like, I don't know, but inside, there's a part of me that's hungry, that's thirsty, and I can't seem to get it quenched. So we take our straws, and we start bringing them to different areas of life. And what the enemy has done a great job of is advertising all of the places you could put that straw. Well, if you could just make enough money, suck on that for a while, certainly that'll be met. If you could just meet the right person, or maybe if you're not, just maybe you can meet enough people. And the next thing you know, you're kind of looking like a rap video. You come and you have your entourage, and you're sucking out of every one of them, going, you know, if this could be the case, certainly I could get that met and quenched. And we go from relationship to relationship. Here's the dangerous part about a relationship, is you're not the only one with a straw. So you meet somebody like, hi, nice to meet you. I suck, and I can't wait to suck you dry. And the other person goes, well, that's awesome, because I suck too, and I can't wait to suck you dry. Now think about how weird that works from the economy of two people. And, so you're, and it's like, which one sucks the most, the hardest, is going to win? I mean, it's weird to think that, because, you know, and then we, we give cards, it's like, I love you because the way you make me feel. I've sucked, and you've made me feel good. You make me feel important. You give me a purpose in life. So we've gotten all of our money and we've gotten through all of our relationships and when those things don't start working like they're supposed to, one of two conclusions, one is that clearly we've been lied to, we tend to avoid that one, and the other one is I must be some kind of freak because everybody else must be happy that has this. I see it all over my videos. I see it in movies. As if that were the truth. So then it's like, well, then the only thing left to do is to medicate. If I could just get wasted enough, or if I could just club enough so that I can't hear myself think, and if I could just lay that life out enough, well, then maybe I can forget and avoid 
and distract myself from the truth is that I suck more now than I did before and I'm desperate. I mean, in the beginning, I might have been a little bit more picky about where I put my straw, but the thirstier you get, the less discriminate you get in where you put it. And there was a time you're like, there's no way I'm going to put this anywhere but Jesus. But then you wander. You wander because somewhere down the line, you pulled the straw out, and as you pulled the straw out, you got thirsty, and you started thinking the problem was Jesus. Isn't that weird? And here's the problem, is you can just move the straw just a little bit on the table to something that's Christian-ish, and which will always fail you. And then you're going to blame Jesus for it. Okay, come on, I went to this church, I met this person, there's this person, he was a godly person or whatever, I've, he's written 12 books, and wow, and then I met him, I'm like, wow, you're a jerk like everybody else. Surprise, surprise, you're aware of the fact, I remind you, we all suck. Some people are just a little bit more clear in it. You walk by and the guy's like, you got a top in kind of thing. And you're like, no. And they're like, well, nobody cares. I'm like, you don't care about me. I'm, a, I'm, I'm the next pound as far as you're concerned. But at least they're clear. They're holding out their cup. Now, the reason I say that is Jesus starts this thing by saying, there's only one real vine that's going to bear forth the fruit you're looking for. And that vine is Jesus. Not Jesus-ish. Not the church, not Calvary Chapel, not a denomination or a non-denomination. It doesn't matter whether that person has the perfect voice or the perfect message or the perfect whatever. At best, they're a conduit, and at worst, they're a cul-de-sac. Because you need to know, though, that my responsibility is for you to tap into me, and you will never wither. But let me tell you, my father's active in this garden metaphor as well. In verse 2, he says, now every branch, notice it says, in me. He doesn't say every branch outside of me, but every branch in me, God's already got an issue with the others, that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Recognize this. Like it or not, you're going to get cut. You're either going to get cut down or you're going to get cut off. Which one sounds less threatening? And he says, here's the situation. The father's responsibility as the gardener, as the vine dresser, is more than, please hear me in this, it's more than just getting the most amount of grapes he can. Where we came from on the central coast of California, there were many vineyards. It was the land of vineyards. And by the way, apparently it's a fairly booming business because when everybody else seemed like they didn't have any money, these people were building really, really big places. And we had a couple that frequented our fellowship and it was kind of fun to be able to sit and listen to them. Needless to say, anytime something happens in Scripture, I want to talk to somebody who seems to be an expert or few people that seem to be experts and get a little bit of understanding. I'm like, walk me through your vineyard, can you? Sure. And there was a guy named Tom. He was a really sweet man. Super sweet man. And he walked me through his vineyard. And it was during the time of their first trimming. And what I found really interesting was is they didn't just trim 
those branches, those would be the obvious. The branches that were clearly fruitless. Oh, that's the way it starts, right? It's a big, nasty branch. It's a big old thing. Seems like it's got a lot of promise and off that thing goes. And I'm like, explain to me what they're doing. He goes, well, clearly that's obvious. Because it's sucking life from the main branch that would go to places that would be fruitful. And he calls it mercy to the grapes. I'm like, okay, I get it. But what I watched is how many times they trimmed ones that had little grapes on it. And I thought, well, that just seems kind of strange. He goes, no, these are false grapes. I'm like, the same branch produces false grapes. He goes, well, they're really grapes, but they'll never mature the way that you think they are. And it takes an expert to note this, and I'm thankful that's not my job. And he goes, you know, we don't trim these to produce more grapes. But when we trim these, it is so that the grapes would be sweeter. And I remember that distinctly. And the reason I say that is there are going to be areas, to be honest, we might fight him over that God would cut off. No, again, these are those that are attached to Jesus. These aren't those that aren't, that are sucking with no fruit. Which is funny because Jesus is going to tell us here in a moment that if you stay attached to him, you're going to bear all kinds of fruit. So clearly you don't, that doesn't apply to you. You can't be fruitless and stay attached to Jesus. But you can certainly hang out and look attached. You can Photoshop yourself into an attachment-looking thing and really not be attached to Jesus. You can be attached to all kinds of church things and not be attached to Jesus. Having been a pastor for nearly 30 years, one of the things that I've noticed is a lot of people, sometimes most of the people who would come to church, aren't necessarily there for Jesus first. Especially if you have a choir with cute girls, or you have the right kind of worship team, or the right kind of building, or the right kind of something to offer people, those things will all draw. Now you can only hope they transition, but sometimes those people get cut, and you get really bothered by it. And the Lord will do that in your life too. It's amazing how He cuts things off that we will fight Him over, and then yet we know this verse. But then it's like, well, this seems like it's bearing fruit. It's taken a little bit of time. There was a time in our life where I was working, in essence, three, three t- full-time jobs. And they were all ministry. I mean, one was two schools, I think, at that time. And a full-time Christian band. And pastoring in the Central Coast. I don't know, I mean, this is why I'm so weird today. I don't know if I slept through that season. And I remember reintroducing myself to my wife on several occasions. I mean, it would be fairly common, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary, to do a concert all night somewhere several hours away and then drive home in time to set up for church on Sunday morning. I miss my youth when it comes to those things. And I remember there was a time where it became evident, to be honest, what it became was is that we had our first child and everything was to change. I was not going to be an absentee dad. Now, I could drag Suzanne to different places and several of those things, but there's no way we could drag a baby through that. Or to drag my wife with a baby through all of that. And I remember crying out to God. They were all fruitful. Crying out, God, and doesn't this sound kind of like a wimpy prayer? Bless me out of it. Bless something so magnificently that the other two things just shrivel and I don't want them anymore. 
You know what it talks about? He who sows with tears will reap with joy. You're familiar with that verse, many of you, right? You ever think about what that means? The, and forgive me, I'm bringing all of this into the same point, but there is a place called Kifal Kedem in Israel, and it means ancient village. And it's a place where people kind of live, they're kind of like the Amish for Jewish people. They live like 2,000 years ago. They thresh like they used to thresh, and they make bread like they used to make bread. It's a really lovely place. And he's the one who, he's very, very orthodox in his, in his ways, um, Menachem. And he's like, you know, we don't know why, but we sow when we cry. When we sow when it's been a blessing as a Christian to be able to say, is it possible, Menachem, because Jesus made clear that when a seed is thrown in the ground, it doesn't produce unless it, fruit unless it dies. Unless it dies, it remains alone. But there's a standard there. There are a lot of things you'll throw into the ground and you'll be like, good riddance. Hey, that's an addiction. I don't like that about me. I didn't like that about me before I was saved. Jesus, be the great Ben Lorry guy. You know what I'm saying? Take out the rubbish and I'm more than happy to give it to you. There's no sowing with tears on that stuff. That's gladly buried. But when you sow with tears, you're letting go of something that's dear to you because you know that it's right. And might I say the Lord always, hear me on this, the Lord always promises to bless profusely those who are willing to betray their hearts for what is right. That's a rough one. Well, back in the situation, now I'm pulling back out each level. This is like inception with the message. Right? Back out of the level on this, we're back now on the central coast, and I'm asking God to bless me out of something. All three things were dear in their own way. But the Lord just sat me down and said, Tony, you pick. Whatever you pick, I'm going to bless. And there was no question. It wasn't like maybe, maybe. I love pastoring. I love sharing the word and I love watching people come to Christ. And this is it. Everything else is secondary. That week, it was like calling up two schools and telling them I'm not coming back next year. That was a bit of a weird week for the students. And uh, I think some of the Probably the administration probably applauded and the kids threw up. Uh, and, you know, with the band, it was like, okay, we're done with this because my family's too important and this is the thing and the Lord really, really blessed that. The point was, is that there are things that, God are gonna, that God's going to trim that you could say, well, these are actually seemingly beneficial things, but the Lord will do it to make your fruit sweeter. Sometimes the Lord, and you're probably aware of this, this happens with people, they, they have the great gardener has to trim things down to something so skeletal you don't even think this thing is alive. And it isn't just because he doesn't think that this thing's going to survive unless he does that. It's because he wants more than fruit. He wants sweet fruit. Well, we may not get through all of this text, but this is a great place to start. Imagine being one of those people walking with Jesus and we're okay. Aren't we normally great with Jesus' parables until it forces us to choose something? And we're like, yeah, it's a lovely story and I think I can go to sleep now. Thanks, Lord. But he's going, no, wait a minute. You need to recognize how this applies. And he's going to take us, in essence, from precept to application in this. And he starts by saying this. Look at, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. So you need to know my dad's busy. And he's going to be busy cutting. 
And by the way, it's interesting what God's going to use. Jesus is going to tell them, by the way, that God's done most of the cutting already with them. And he's used the one thing that God tells us is sharper than a double-edged sword. Now, I don't know if you've ever been cut, but the sharper the thing is, it's actually more beneficial. And the reason is, now may have cut deeper. Now, that I don't recommend. But the issue is, is that it tends to heal quicker when it's cut sharper because it's a dull thing that takes a lot longer and it's a lot more painful. And I'm speaking as a guy who's been cut by both. Now, here's the point, and he goes, and it tells us that God's word is active and living sharper than a double-edged sword. Remember, it's able to divide joints and marrow and soul and spirit, discerning the intent and thoughts of the heart. And I love the fact that this is what God tells us. And Jesus is going to tell us the same thing here. But you need to recognize right now, whether you know it or not, God's actually pulling this thing out and he's starting to do some cutting. And he's going to, and he's going to cut off some ugly pounds off of all of us. Because there are areas of our life that God really wants to trim. And here's the weird part is when God wants to cut something, he doesn't want us trying to stick it back on. We've had that in the last couple of months where we've had things that were very dear to us and we watched them cut. And it's like, all right, God, if you're the one doing this cutting, then all we can do is let it go. And every branch of me that doesn't bear fruit, those should be the no-brainer. He's going to clearly take that away. But every branch that bears fruit, he still prunes. Now notice it doesn't just say that he prunes things that are clearly fruitless parts of that. He says he prunes a fruitful branch to bear better fruit, to bear more fruit. And then he says this in verse 3, you're already clean. Casados. Clean. Because of the word in which I've spoken to you, I remember taking this verse and putting it on an index card and sellotaping it onto my shower door. For those days when I felt like I was going to run late, I'm already clean because of the word God spoken. But obviously, that's not the application here. When you talk to a person who's a vineyard owner, he talks about cleaning the vines. I think it's an interesting term. When I think cleaning the vines, that's because a bird pooped on it or because they've been lying in the ground and they shouldn't. And of course, you're probably aware of the fact that they elevate those branches. But he says, no, the idea of it is, is that dirty is more than what comes from the outside. Dirty is just what sucks out the, the purity from the inside. And they go, oh, I had no idea. And he goes, you're, he goes, look at, I've already, God's already done the trimming. The Father's already done the trimming with you, and He's done it to what I've told you already. In other words, God's word, as we know, sharper than a double-edged sword, actually starts doing the cutting if we're willing to let Him. Now, either you're going to get cut up because you're fighting. You never want to be in a knife fight. Hopefully, none of you have ever been in a knife fight. You could probably pretend like you've been in a knife fight, but I guarantee you, you never want to be in a knife fight, regardless. But if you're going to be in surgery because the surgeon knows what he's doing and he's removing something harmful, you don't want that to become a knife fight either, do you? Because that's only to your detriment and to the frustration of the surgeon. There's the problem. Born and raised, well, born, and I can't say raised, I don't even know if I'm mature yet, but born in Chicago. And, and by the way, some of the doctors there probably are still learning. And I had, um, through a series of events, ripped up my shoulder to the point where I was told if I slept on it another night, I might sever the nerve and lose it completely. So that was a really fun day. Week, actually, but nonetheless. And ultimately, they give me, they bring in the anesthetician and all of that stuff, and they have to put me under and stick in a bunch of you know, titanium rods and all that. It's a superhero thing. And... Uh, you know, and they put, put nylon webbing, remove all of my cartilage and ligaments and all of that stuff. It was a really fun experience. All of that said, in the middle of um, 
of the surgery, I wake up in the middle of the surgery and, and I'm very and I become sick. And all, the only reason I remember it is because I could remember being semi-conscious and somebody grabbing my face and flinging it the opposite direction of my completely open shoulder at that particular moment. Now, I don't mean to be gross. I do that naturally, by the way. But it's like, imagine, if you will, being sick on an open shoulder. I can't think that that would be of to anyone's benefit, mine included. At that particular moment, my body was fighting the surgeon. To which, by the way, nobody, nobody benefits. When the Lord does his cutting, can you imagine how insane it is to fight the surgeon? The only reason you'd fight the surgeon is somehow you're convinced. Somehow you're convinced you could do it better than him. Or you know better than him. Could you imagine me at that moment getting up and going, no, 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 you guys, I'll take care of it. Clearly you're inept. Let me do that. Give me that steel rod. I mean, how dumb would that be? And that's for a person, by the way, who is faulty as a surgeon nonetheless. Or faulty because he's a human being. There's a margin of error in that. But imagine arguing with God. Who knows you better than you do, but somehow you think you have a right to take something back and actually go, well, actually... I know that you've given this diagnosis, but I have a different diagnosis. Now, I can understand how you could argue with a person who's human, but arguing with God over his diagnosis? And then God's saying, unless you recognize this diagnosis, you really won't let me do the surgery I want to do? And you'll all start asking me in the middle of it. I think one of the greatest things that God does in surgeries like that is knock you out because you don't want to be there going, are we there yet? And you imagine if you were awake for those surgeries, I mean, it, let's face it, we've come a long way, baby. A hundred years ago, you, you were awake for a lot of these things. They took out the hacksaw and that was it. Aren't you thankful for the last couple centuries of medicine? And you kind of wake up and you're like, that was a very long extended dream sequence. And by the time you're done, you're like, okay, I guess we're on the other side of that thing. Well, imagine, if you will, that when God's doing that, you actually decide to self-medicate. You decide, well, you know, actually, I think if I could just get a really big bottle, I can smack that whole thing down, then I can do all the surgery you want to do at that point. I won't feel it till tomorrow. But people do that. Let's be honest. I don't know what your medication is. But when the Lord's doing surgery in your life and he starts cutting things, it's amazing how we could run to so many other things instead of cling to him at a moment like that. You know what's interesting? Might I dare say that word would be to stray versus to stay. And might I say that becomes our problem. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us as we develop the text now. Consider this. He says, every branch that doesn't bear fruit, that's a no-brainer. That's going to get cut off. But if you're a fruitful branch, he's still going to prune you. My father is. My dad's going to prune you because he wants to bear better and, and more voluminous fruit. But you're already taken care of. You're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So this is what I need you to do, guys. In context of my dad's going to do this cutting, and he's doing this cutting, you need to stay. You need to remain. And I remind you again, look at verse 4 here. This word abide or remain is going to be used 11 times in these verses. Abide is the word meno. It'll be used 
In verse 4, abide, abides, abide. Verse 5, abide. 6, abide. 7, abide, abide. Verse 9, abide. Verse 10, abide, abide. And verse 11, remain. Same word, by the way. Look at This is what Jesus is telling us, and we're missing it. And I remind you, we're walking through a vineyard while this is all happening, and it's springtime. It's the time of clipping, by the way. But it's Passover. Probably nobody's doing it at this moment. And, and, and while this is happening, Jesus is looking. He's going, look at When the Father does this trimming, this is the time we stray. And you know why? Because the enemy is the accuser. You know that. That's what his name means. And he'll accuse you to you. He'll accuse others to you, you to others. And he'll accuse God to you and you to God. So you know what happens? Is he's the one who starts saying, you know, you are entitled to an answer. I mean, look at he's pulled this person out of your life. He's pulled this situation out of your life. Anything that could suck is applies, right? He's pulled this convenience or this comfort out of your life. He's pulled you out of a situation that you really liked. And the enemy goes, you know, you should be you should be entitled to an answer from God. He owes you that. You know what God owes us? He owes us hell. That's what we've earned. So if you want to actually try to cash in on that, I don't recommend it. But God, out of his kindness, gives us grace and washes us clean in his forgiveness. Oh, that person, you know, that person said he was a Christian. Sure, so does Satan. Read first, or 2 Corinthians 11. Find out for yourself. You'll find that even his servants masquerade as ministers of righteousness. They don't just pretend to be Christians. They're actually pastors. They're profile people on television. And let's be honest, the moment I said television, most of you are like, oh yeah, okay, I get that. You know, and the reason I say that is, is that there are all these things that, you, that stack up and then the enemy goes, now, God's pulling out of your life. How mean is he? How rotten. Come on, God's supposed to care and this is, this is, this makes you feel good about you, man. This is a good thing. This is a button you push and people go, whoa, wow, what? How could God remove that? How and why? Those great questions the enemy uses that are so effective. And then you're like, you know what? You're right. Yeah. He deserves, I deserve an answer. I deserve an answer to that. But you do know this. The moment you start to listen to the enemy's performance, he'll give you the whole show. And you're sitting down, and the next thing you know, you're buying it, and now you are charging God with crimes in your heart. Know it or not. Jesus goes, I want to warn you, at those times, you've you, you got to stay. You've got to stick around. Because I'm going to. And I don't want you to make my life miserable by trying to stay out with you while you are trying to be easy to run from me. Abide in me, would you please? And I in you. Because you'll never bear fruit any other way. The branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. You know that. This is obvious. You rip that thing off and you leave it anywhere. It's not going to bear any fruit. And in the same way, by the way, you can't either. Fruitfulness is impossible alone. But he who is planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of his God. That's what where we have as a promise. Verse 5 says, I'm the vine. Now that we've got the true one worked out, now let's get back to the vine point. You're the branches. Let's just make clear, I don't draw from you. Jesus is like, you need to know this. I don't come with a straw in our relationship. Aren't you thankful? The only person that isn't going to come with a straw is Jesus. It's like, I'm coming to give. Didn't Jesus say, you come to me thirsty, but if you believe in me, out of you will torrent living water? 
Because you can come thirsty with your straw, but I'm going to turn you into a fountain. Why? Because everyone else around you still has their straws. Could you imagine starting relationships on the other side of that? Instead of coming with a straw, starting a relationship in a state of overflow? Where the point is, how do I serve you? Oh, no, 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 how do I serve you? And the only thing we're arguing over, who can serve the other one? Well, we don't come in and go, validate me, make me important, whatever the case is, because I need to suck and you need to help me. Could you imagine? Because that's what God actually intended relationships to be. Because sooner or later, that straw is going to start getting that nasty noise. And you know what that means? You're running out. I used to be a college pastor up in, or a university pastor up in Chico. And we just did really dumb, gross things because that's what you do at that time. And, uh, I mean, we, you know, we had to think out of the box. We tried to reach people and we're like, how do you do that, for instance? And, you know, I just remember thinking, it was before, believe it or not, it was before a day when we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have mobiles back then. Believe it. I'm like, tell me another story, Grandpa. And in that, in that time, I just remember, there's like, you, how do you get people to read? People are trying to hand out tracts. Nobody was interested. And I realized something when I was at a public restaurant. And that was that when you sit down in a public stall, you just start reading what's on the walls. Like, you know it's not going to be edifying. You know there's nothing that's going to change your life for the better in that. But you sit there and you're like, oh, let's see what this guy carved on that. You know, I mean, it's weird. So we were like, you know, we need to put tracks in every public restroom. It was like one of the things we did. We put it on the back of the doors and it's like, you know, you feel like your life is being run and you just want it, you feel flush and you just want it all gone. And, you know, you, you use the metaphors. But it worked. People got, people would come and they'd get saved from it. But I just remember in all of that, trying to, I'm like, why in the world am I going here? with this and it was there was a greater purpose behind it but it was like i just remember in that we would take these guys together and we would we would order at this place called jack's and we would order this big plate of jello gelatin you know like flavored gelatin and it wiggles and that kind of thing it's over derek you know that kind of thing and it'd be this big thing and we would and we'd have like 30 people and we'd all go in and add it with straws it was the most disgusting thing you've ever heard in your life because like <laughs> but multiply that by 30 it was disgusting but I remember the reason the sound was not because you got jello, it was because there was spaces missing. And that happens in your relationships. You're sucking and you're sucking and you get that sound. And you know what that means? Is someone's running out. And Jesus is like, you'll never have to worry about that with me. But if you come in in a state of overflow, the point is, is that you never have that sound because nobody's running out. Because you're going to the one person that can fulfill you. And he says, look it, you can't bear fruit any other way, but if you abide in me, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, I want you to know you're not just going to bear fruit, you're going to bear much fruit. Because without me, you can't do anything. Let me just say it this way, there's one thing we can do great without Jesus, and that is nothing. We can do nothing really well without Jesus. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and literally and withered. They gather them together and they throw them in the fire and they're burned. And I realize I'm either bearing fruit or I'm burned in fire. Sounds like a pretty easy choice. I'm either going to be attached and fruitful or detached and withered. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll be able to ask the Father whatever you want and he's going to give it to you. And you go, oh, this is the secret to getting what I want. But if I'm abiding in Jesus, I'm not going to be asking for things that take me away. And that becomes the danger. What abides in me, according to verse 4, is that Jesus does. According to verse 7, Jesus' words do. And according to verse 11, Jesus' joy does. It tells us in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
In regards to the joy, we know that in his presence is the fullness of it. Psalm 16.11 tells us that. And Nehemiah 8.10 tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And they're like, I want strength, I want joy. Abide in me. As a matter of fact, verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified, you bear much fruit, and in this you'll be my disciples. I realize that my fruitfulness glorifies our God and demonstrates my discipleship. But I can't abide in something I'm not currently in. He can't say, stay there if you're not there. Now look at Jesus is going to segment this now into the issue of love in verse 9. But I'm going to be honest with you as I'm kind of just seeking the Lord right now even in prayer. Maybe the point is that we shouldn't go farther but we should spend more time praying. You need to recognize, listen to what it says. This is what you're actually robbing yourself from by not clinging to Him. Has the Father loved me? I've also loved you. Abide in my love. Notice it says, abide in my love. I want you in love. My love, Christ is saying. And I I ask myself, am I still in love? Am I in Christ's love like I should be? Because if I'm in Christ's love, I'm not going to be busy shopping elsewhere. But again, I remind you, I can't abide in something I'm not currently in. I will either stray or I will stay. But what I'm robbing myself from is his love and I'm robbing myself from his joy. Oddly enough, those are usually the things that I stray to find. Where if I would have remained, I would have gotten an overflow. I need to find love. I need to find something to make me happy. And there's a big difference between joy and happiness. I'm very aware of that. We'll have to develop that another time. But I just want to ask you something. This is the day we commemorate Jesus entering into Jerusalem. According to the Gospel of Luke, he is bawling his eyes out. And he's bawling his eyes out because people actually are more than happy to take a Messiah, but they've already ordained exactly what he should do, how he should do it, and when he should do it. And somehow in that, Jesus is actually, hear me on this, he's actually answering a greater call, a more transcending need. I mean, we're under the thumb of Rome. We want that gone. Sure, the Messiah should come and just kick Rome's butt. That's what we would expect as we're crying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hoshana. Hoshana means save now. Save me, God. But could you imagine Jesus crying because they're saying the right words, but it has an entirely wrong meaning. Jesus, don't save me from the eternal damnation of my own sin and guilt. Save me from my loneliness. Save me from this particular addiction. Save me from the discord of my life right now. Save me from myself because I'm my own worst enemy, at least as I look around. Save me from that person that's driving me crazy or that situation that continues to weigh on me. The crazy part about it is when the Lord saved you from the eternal need, those things all get put into place, but He could save you from all of those things and you could still go to hell. But my God's playing for keeps and he's dwelling with a mindset of eternity and he's like, you don't realize every one of those things is temporary. That doesn't mean it's not painful. It doesn't mean it's not important. It's just not as important as eternity. And they're saying, save me, but he's going, but from what? 
If only you had known this day, the day of your visitation, you know how long I've been waiting to tuck you in and pull you into me like a hen would gather his cheeks. Do you know how long I've been waiting for this? How long I've been waiting for you to say, please save me. I'm so tired of sucking. I'm so tired of being disappointed. I'm so tired of compromising. I'm so tired of hoping and having it fall apart in front of me. I'm so tired of all of that. Please save me from more than this moment. Save me from the thing that causes all of this in the first place that keeps me so fervent with this straw in my hand looking for the next thing to stick it in. Because I'm empty and I'm lonely and I'm afraid and I'm desperate. And all of the things, it's like going to the doctor and saying, could you please treat every symptom I have? You're like, how about I cure you? No, I'm not interested in curing me. Could you just treat the symptoms? Beloved, please hear me as we go to prayer. Jesus didn't die on a cross so you would just could find the right person to hang out with or to get the right job. He certainly didn't die on the cross so you could get a bigger car or a larger house. Well, a larger house, yes, but that's the one eternally, not here. I mean, wouldn't that be weird? Jesus lived his whole ministry homeless so that he could just give you a big place in Chelsea. Seems a little ironic to me. Jesus would be betrayed by his closest. Every one of them would desert him just so that you would actually have somebody, someone's hand to hold. And look, there's nothing wrong with having a hand to hold. Glad I've had mine for over 28 years now. But he's like, you need to recognize this. My dad loves you enough to cut. But he cuts because he wants other lives changed by you. He didn't turn you into a fountain so you could just be wet. I'm going to turn you into a fountain because he knows everybody else still has their straws out. The crazy part's when Christians run around with straws out. Because then the world's like, well, you clearly don't have anything I have that I don't have because nothing different I see in you. Could you imagine what it would be like to be satisfied in Christ to the point of overflowing? And the world would come with all of its temptations of the new whatever, 6.8.9.0x, whatever it is, and you're just like, yeah, doesn't mean the same anymore. My glorious God and King died on a cross because he'd rather die than live without me. And everything else was secondary to him. All of his comforts. I mean, think about it. He had all the glory. He had. He was the richest being in eternity. He had everything but me, and that wasn't enough. And it wasn't because he was greedy. He was willing to give it all up to get me. That tells me how valuable I am, and you too. Have you said yes to him, or just to his stuff? Are we more interested in his presence or his blessing? And when we say presence, what we mean by that is not, can I get the shakes and the wiggles and the holy whatevers? 
Am I more interested in a relationship with him or am I more interested in the regalia and the stuff that I think he has to offer? Is Jesus a store or is he the end of my searching? And as we go to prayer, I just want to ask, on this day that we celebrate Christ entering into his own home and finding it completely in disarray, cluttered and littered with market, with greed, avarice, and obscenely busy with inconsequential things. And this is supposed to be his house now. What do you see the same? What do you see at a place littered with greed and avarice? What do you see it as a place that is so stern on its own ambitions and wills that it really doesn't say your will be done except your will be done if it means that mine gets more. Is it so noisy and cluttered that no real prayer takes place anymore because it's just so full of all the stuff we want that we don't actually hear him speak those still small beautiful words that bring us peace and we're shouting for it. Do you realize how merciful it is when he starts flipping tables and driving people out? Do you know what it tells us happens next according to Mark? He starts healing people. Drives all that out so it could be a place of healing. What if that needs to be the case with you today? Then he needs to drive stuff out so it could be a place of healing. So that God uses you to to touch everyone else's lives because you yourself have been touched. Have you accepted that, Jesus? I'll give you the chance. But if you have, my prayer is, will you let him prune? Or will you fight him? Pray with me, would you please? Father in heaven, I want to thank you for your great and amazing love for us. I want to thank you for your kindness. I want to thank you for the way, Lord, that you have spoken to us and challenged us today. Jesus, we know inherently in our own heads in our own spirits, that you are the true vine. And we confess to you, we are wandering branches. And there are times where we plug into you, Lord, and it's so good and it's so rich and it's so fruitful. And there are other moments where we kind of just try to find something else that's kind of you-ish. And we've listen to the enemy that has encouraged us and advertised for our wandering. But it just seems so insane that we would do this. Will you heal us and deliver us from this insanity? Today, Lord, we want to welcome you in and ask you to clean the courtyard Declutter. Flip the tables. Drive out all that greed and avarice. And make it a place of prayer and healing. Lord, those things that we so quickly grab a hold of and call ourselves entitled, will you forgive us? 
and help us to surrender our lives over to you. And in that, Lord, we know we really can't love other people the way you call us to love other people if we're going to uh, spend our lives trying to get everyone else's um, just running around with our straws. So Lord, I just pray right now for us that you would, even in this room, change our hearts. You've told us to repent, to change our minds, and in changing our minds, you'll change our hearts. We change our minds and say, Lord, please have free reign in here and make our hearts your home. We recognize that when you drive things out, that may not be pleasant. And it will be disruptive and unrestful. But Lord, there is a rest at the end of it all that comes with the silence and prayer. The peace that comes there. The place of healing, Lord, that we want. But Lord, if this is about functioning with you-ish, Lord, then it just seems so dumb. But Jesus, I just pray that your presence would be so prevalent in our lives to us and through us. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you've never accepted this gift of Jesus, the Bible tells us he died on the cross according to Scripture for our sins. He was buried and on the third day, according to Scripture, rose again and then he was seen by a whole lot of people. And in that, you have a choice to make. Are you going to accept that payment on your behalf, declaring Jesus as your Savior, your ransom and your Lord? But to do that, you give him permission to reinvent you. And if that's you today, just pray this prayer with me, would you please? God in heaven, I am a sinner. Like all men are sinners, I'm a sinner. And because you love me, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me so that all my sin could be punished. And yet I wouldn't have to spend eternity away from you. And that is not fair. That's grace. When Jesus died on that cross, my bill was paid. And when he rose again, he offers me a new life without the the handcuffs of that guilt and shame anymore. And I say yes. Declaring Jesus is the architect of my reinvention. I say yes. Handing my life over to Jesus. Father, take me now. Make me pure, make me clean, but make me yours. And as you take me, Lord, I pray you would make me that new creation you intend. Reinvent me now, as I belong to you. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, you've heard us now. And I pray today, Lord, that you would be blessed as we seek to leave here today and to be a blessing to each other. Prepare us for this week. And on the one week that some people actually consider coming and hearing your truth, make us the ambassadors you intend. May we risk it this week. I pray your Holy Spirit would overcome us. Get us over ourselves. And in getting us over ourselves, use us to bring people to you and you to others. In Jesus' name we pray.